You know, it, it's uh, pretty amazing that we've gotten through this service as good as we have so far this morning without all the ladies here. I've often said happen if the ladies weren't involved, and there's a lot of truth to that, uh, more truth than fiction for sure. <clears throat> you know, when I began to prepare for this series of messages along with Justin, the first thing I did was just to read through the epistle of 1 Peter several times. And I was just amazed, again, that how focused Peter was on the reality of Christians facing persecution and suffering and painful things and the place that that has in our lives. In all five chapters, Peter addresses this, sometimes several times. And this is a part of the gospel that we don't frequently hear. And we instinctively, we react to it. We don't want to hear it. We don't want to face the reality that a part of the gospel is that we will suffer persecution. We will face hard things. And that a Christian, you know, just getting up in the morning and going to work, facing responsibility, takes determination. It takes obedience. It takes doing all things as unto the Lord, the God and Father of mercies and all comfort, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, deemed it necessary that we as Christians, if we are to be all that God wanted us to be, we would have to face the reality of persecution and suffering. And in our text this morning, in chapter 2, we just read it, verse 21. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, and then down to verse 21. Speaking of the suffering wrongly, he says, For to this you were called. We were called to suffering. That's a part of the gospel. And I'm really going to ask you to hang with me this morning. Uh, it'd be real easy for you, along with myself, to get lost with the, the flow of logic through, through this text because I'm going to approach it a little different. But God has called us to suffering. And it says, Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. <clears throat> as surely as God called us unto salvation, so he has called us to suffering that we might be conformed to his death. Philippians 3.10 says, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And then I kind of wince as I complete the verse. And the fellowship of being conformed to his death. The reality is, if we are going to be strong, if we're going to be mature, 
it's going to mean that we face hard things. And when we surrender to his will and purpose, it is only our death to self that renders us fit to be useful in his kingdom. It is only our death to self that renders us fit to be used in his kingdom. Coming to a place where it's not about us, but it's about surrendering to his will and purposes, even when we don't understand them. And because of the way we are as fallen human beings, even as new, new creatures in Christ Jesus, it still requires pain as a motivation to bring us to that place of submission. In my quiet time this week, I was in the book, or last week, I was in the book of Luke, chapter 21, and I, I read something that just never registered with me before. In verse 12, Jesus was talking to the disciples about the things that were going to happen in the, in the last days, famines, earthquakes, pestilence, signs, and so on. And he says, but before all these things, verse 12, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. And there, here it is, verse 13. But it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. If God brings persecution to me because he wants me to bear testimony before whoever, who am I to say, uh-uh. Who's in charge? Is it all about me? Or is it about his agenda? We are so, <laughs> as American Christians who are used so much gratification now, so much abundance and affluence, we come to think that it's all about us. But the Christian life is not about us. It's all about him. And we are his servants to do his will for his purposes. It's not about us. But we come to that place it's a good place to be. Life really works that way. But the, the greater reason than being a witness that persecution might bring us to is suffering as a benefit for ourselves. And I'm sure that Justin has already referred to this verse, but in, because this is the verse that tells us why this epistle was written. Peter says in verse 10 of chapter 5, but may the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. You want to be mature in Christ? Is that your prayer? Then God is going to bring some pain into your life along the way. It's the only way. And then in verse 12, Paul goes on to say, or Peter, this is the true grace of God. 
Those hard things that come into our lives are grace. They're a gift from God for our benefit. But more than that, there are many reasons. Maturity in Christ, which is what Peter said. James said it this way, Count it all joy, brethren, when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work in you, that you might be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. There are no shortcuts. Temptation is the enemy's attempt to destroy us. Trials are God's attempt to help us become mature and strong in Christ. In 1 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4, we find that uh, suffering many times brings ministry opportunity. We are able, from firsthand experience, to minister to others the same things we have experienced. That's what it speaks of there. God brings suffering into our life and other things to build within us a life message that we can share with other similar things. And then, of course, there's those mid-course corrections. You know, David, King David, when he sinned uh, adultery, he didn't face up to it, and the hand of God was heavy upon him, and there were physical consequences. It says, my bones waxed old through their groaning all the night long. Uh, his conscience was bearing down upon him as the Lord said, hey, David, you've got to face this thing. We've got to make this right. And uh, I don't know if it was David that wrote Psalm 119, but there we read, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. I know, O Lord, that your judgments are right, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Affliction initiated by the Lord in such instances is an expression of his love. Hebrews chapter 12, it says, God only disciplines those who are his own. For whom the Father loves, he chastens. That is one of the reasons. Here's one we often miss, is the mercy of God. In Isaiah 57, 1, we read, The righteous perish, and no one takes it to heart. No one considers that the righteous is taken away from evil. If I die tomorrow because of cancer, a car wreck, a grizzly bear, or who knows what, it is not a tragedy. In mercy, God will be taking me to himself. You might think it's premature. I just know that when my time's up, it's because God has ordained it. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Death is my doorway to eternal joy in the presence of my Savior. And if God deems that I go tomorrow, praise the Lord. I'm ready, and it's expression of mercy. And as wonderful as life has been, life is the pits compared to what it's going to be. I've God has my permission to take me whenever. And uh, that's easier to say at almost 70 than it was at 30. But I, but I believe it. And then the motivation to keep perspective. Paul said in Romans 8.18, the sufferings of this present hour are not worthy to be compared to the glory that's going to be revealed 
Oh, man, it's going to be wonderful. It's so important to live life in the perspective of eternity. And God's ministry of suffering and pain and persecution and responsibility and unpleasant things that are necessary in our life are all a part of God's program to make us mature and strong. Now last week, the last verse of the text that Justin used was verse 17. And it serves also as a great preamble to the text that we've read this morning. In verse 17, we read, Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Honor, to treat with respect, a keen sense of ethical conduct and integrity toward others. And it's a a verb. We're to honor the king in the text last week. We're to honor our master in human terms, an employer or whatever. Next week, family, wives, husbands, in all circumstances, we are to honor, treat with a keen sense of ethical conduct and integrity. There's something else from last last week. In verse 13, the word submit Uh, Therefore, submit yourselves. Peter uses this word as an overriding principle of godly response to civil law and authority. The same holds true for servants and masters, husbands and wives, and so on. And this morning, I could preach another sermon about servants and masters. You've all heard it many times. And we usually uh, try to apply that to uh, employment situations, employer-employee. It's not totally parallel. In our society, in our culture, jobs are, you, you work in a job voluntarily. It's not because you were sold into slavery. Your employer does not have the right of life and death over you, though you might think so at times. That was the case often in the context of when Scripture was written. A few years back, there was a a country, Western, that the refrain kept running over and over, take this job and shove it. Now, it didn't say where to shove it, just kept saying, take this job and shove it. Well, that's an option that we have here in America because our employment is voluntary. That was not the case there. And it makes that text uh, far more significant when you read it in that light. So this text is addressing servant-master relationship, especially when the, the master is harsh and unjust And it gives the instruction that we read. But this underlying this is a principle that is universal and applies to all relationships. And I'm going to approach this text this morning in that way. 
And uh, here's the precept. Verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear. Submissive. An attitude accompanied by actions which flow from a true spirit of humility. An attitude accompanied by actions which flows from a true spirit of humility. This humility is rooted in a surrender of control to God and His will in everything. This humility is rooted in a surrender of control. A surrender of control to God and His will in everything. The resulting outcome is a lifestyle which seeks the welfare of others and the glory of God in every instance, even when it is an abusive employer or whatever. Now the key here is that word submit, back in verse 13 and again in verse 18. Hupo, under, tasso, to put or place. To put or place oneself under. But the question is, under whom? I might not appreciate my employer. I might not appreciate, as we heard last week, the direction our current president is taking this country. I am to be submissive. The word honor in verse 17 is an almost synonym of submit. To respect, to treat with ethics, ethical conduct, and so on. I can do that when I have submitted myself to God. When I have submitted myself to God's will and purpose, I've placed myself under Him, I am able to properly relate to others. In Ephesians 5.22, Paul instructed wives to submit to their husbands. And that essentially means to honor and to respect. And what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Husbands, you are to honor and respect your wife. In the verse before, verse 21, it says, we are to submit one to another. I am to submit to my wife in the sense that it is applied there. As I submit to God, I can treat her as I submit to God and relate to him in fear and love the brothers and honor the king and honor and respect my wife and my children and everybody. That's what God calls us to and that flows out of a surrender, a submission to the will and purpose of God if we are fully submitted to him, honoring others will comfortably fall into line. Now the rest of this text illustrates this principle in the precedent that Jesus gave us. The precedent in verse 21 and following because Christ also suffered, having, leaving us an example 
that we should follow in his steps. This is what it's like when your notes are out of order. You have to reshuffle. Because Christ left us an example that we should follow. As you see on the screen there, the word hupogramon, under, to write under, was used of taking a piece of paper and tracing. Tracing under, pressing down and tracing under the writing. Almost an exact copy. We are given an example we are to follow the attitude. As Jesus submitted himself to the Father, it was natural for him to be able to do what he did when he surrendered to the horrors of the cross. <clears throat> A few years back, it was real popular to see WWJD. What would Jesus do? Well, you know, that's kind of what it's saying here. He did give us an example to follow. And it's not just a list of rules. It's an example of a person's lifestyle, the whole whole four acres, the whole 40 acres, the whole thing, attitude, actions, everything. And before we consider this example that Jesus gave us, there's an imperative distinction that we need to make. There's exemplary suffering, and then there's redemptive suffering. When Jesus suffered during the Passion Week, he did so unjustly. And as he did, he did so, leaving us an example to follow. But ultimately, he suffered and died as the sacrifice for our sins to redeem us from the slave market of sin and its eternal consequences. This we can never do. And in our liberal thinking uh, Christianity, much of it today, Jesus' life has just been uh, reduced to a good example to follow. That's it. Folks, there's more to it than that. Jesus bore our sins on that cross. And we will look at that before we return. But very simply, our text is broken down into exemplary suffering and redemptive suffering. In verses 21 to 23, these verses contain the template that we are said to be called upon to follow. We read there that he committed no sin. We're speaking of character here. Conduct always stems from character. Crises don't determine what we are. They simply reveal who we are. The point is this. When extreme emotional pain came to Jesus... He didn't turn and run from it. He didn't try to medicate it with immorality and drugs and alcohol or you name it. He committed no sin in the midst of this incredible suffering. Nor was guile found. The word used, translated guile, means to catch with bait. Just as we disguise a fish hook with a worm... So the idea is to use language designed to mask truth. And it's interesting that while we might be masking the truth, most often when we're facing suffering, intense suffering, we are masking 
the truth usually to ourselves. Denying the reality of it, living with a pity party, or playing pretend, in one way or another we mask the truth most often from ourselves. And he did not revile, he was not defensive, he did not retaliate, he did not become self-protective and use angry words, nor did he threaten. He refused to get into any kind of blame game, or yeah, but you did this. Jesus accepted responsibility for his life and let the record speak for itself. He endured He persevered. The one character trait that I think I admire over any other. There are some of you here this morning that could preach this sermon from experience far better than me. And I applaud you as I have seen you endure terribly difficult things to endure. That's something that I admire and it shows the power of God working in your life. Here's what he did do. He kept on committing himself to the Father. The key to this whole thing of suffering and persecution comes back to submission. Giving over control to the will and purpose of God. And this requires a willingness to relinquish all outcomes Like. But if by faith we have truly submitted ourselves to Him, we can. Is according to His will and purpose. So many of our prayers seem to go unanswered because we have preconceived notions of what the answer ought to be. And we haven't given over control of the outcome to God's will and purpose. The word. Uh, there, paradido, to hand over to the keeping of another was used in secular uh, literature to, to address the issue of, of a criminal being arrested and then handed over to the custody of the peace, another, or of, the, of the police, probably thrown in the slammer. Jesus didn't come to this extremity of the Passion Week and all of a sudden decide decide to give over control to the Father. This is the lifestyle from from the beginning to end that Jesus lived. And when we come to this place in our lives where we are not holding out the right to have certain outcomes go our way or whatever, when we totally release that to God, God whatever, uh, I am submitted to your will and purpose, we will still have suffering. There will still be persecution. And we will not always know the reason why any more than before. But we'll know the outcome will have served his purposes. And that he who never leaves nor forsakes us was with us. The ultimate salve of any suffering situation is to know that he will never leave nor forsake. And I have come to understand for my life that giving up all outcomes to him and saying it's your will and your purpose It's not about me. I'm a servant. Really seeing myself as a servant, that is so freeing. I don't have to worry about the outcomes. I'm going to depart from the flow of the texture just for a minute and talk about counterfeit solutions. 
It says Jesus committed no sin. When, when we come to, to suffering, <clears throat> we come to a door. Actually, there are two doors. On one door is printed pain. Enter into the pain. On the other door are any number of words, but I'll use the word medicate. When we are facing suffering and persecution and pain, we can choose to not face it, to medicate it, or we can enter into the pain, and it's in the pain that we come to be able to face those things that are causing the pain in our, in our individual lives. We can choose such things as drugs and alcohol and immorality or workaholism, compulsive shopping, compulsive eating, compulsive exercise, compulsive volunteerism, compulsive cleaning, compulsive church volunteering even to not face the pain. A book entitled We Are Driven looks at what drives these addictions and most often it is simply an unwillingness to face pain. To face our pain we have to face the issues causing the pain. Honesty, nor was guilt found. He had a clear conscience. And that is one of the purposes of facing our pain. Sometimes the underlying issue is something that we have to come to a place of repentance. We have to come to a place of forgiving somebody. We have to come to a place of making something right in order to have a clear conscience. And then he did not revile. He faced we have to be to a place where we will not revile, but face ourselves, willing to enter into the pain, which becomes the motivation to face our issues. And those issues may be family of origin issues, childhood abuse, rejection, past failures, whatever. These past problems help explain, they don't excuse. And I, have, I firmly believe that childhood issues and, and things of the past, even sexual abuse, and hear me right, it's not the abuse that causes the greater pain. It's our response to it when we choose to medicate. And thus we drag the consequences of that abuse through our entire life. And it affects us deeply. The answer to facing those issues is to face them, deal with them. It leads to repentance. It leads to forgiveness. It leads to grieving. But it leads ultimately to freedom. That's the, uh, the alternative to dragging that stuff with us through our entire lives. And then Jesus did not threaten. Rather, he accepted responsibility. Many people go through their entire life dealing with their issues by shifting the blame, by balancing guilt with blame. It's his fault. It's their fault. It's my parents' fault. It's, 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 it's. And so we deflect. We deal by deflecting from ourselves and enter into self-pity and perhaps a, an entitlement mentality. And thus we drag this stuff with us. Jesus committed no sin, nor was guilt found. He did not revile and he did not threaten. 
but he kept on committing himself to him who judges right, righteously. This is nowhere more clearly demonstrated than in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus, in extreme emotional pain, experienced sweat like great drops of blood. He modeled for us what it means to face pain. And I'm using Matthew 26, where we read that he he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there to pray. When Jesus was was facing extreme suffering, the, the extreme emotional pain and the anticipation of unimaginable pain. What did he do? He became proactive. He went to pray. And it says as he prayed, he said to the Father, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful. Are you able to be honest like that when you pray? Now, honestly, pray the Lord my soul to keep. Thank you for the food. Bless the missionaries. Amen. That kind of praying. Or are you able to communicate with God in absolute honesty and be honest and say, God, this is how I feel. And he was able to, and he did because of relationship, oh my Father. And then I love this. He said, if it is possible, let this path, cup pass from me. Now that's Jesus, God, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, As he came to the place of the cross, he said, Father, if there's any other way, please. Man, that's gut-level honest. Jesus did not want to go to the cross, but he did because of his love for us, nonetheless, and because it was the will of the Father. And so he said, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He gave over the results, the consequences, the outcomes to the Father whose will and purpose he was there as the servant to fulfill. And in this prayer, I see emotional integrity before God as at no other time in scriptures. It is also this kind of emotional integrity in prayer. It is also the road to emotional health, stability, and a deep sense of security. And it's here that opened the door for me 25 years ago when in a time of deep, deep emotional pain that I finally was able, for the first time in my life, to be emotionally honest with God. And in the situation that I was facing, I had come to a place where I thought that God was giving me a dirty deal, that he wasn't treating me fair, and I was having an incredible pity party. And I was pointing the fingers all at God, God, you haven't been treating me fair. Now, that's all nonsense. But what was, what was so good about that, for the first time in my life, that to God. I was on, now he knew. He was able to handle that. He responded to me in, in grace. And it was the beginning of an incredible healing. The dam broke. And the emotions flooded, and it was a very healing beginning. 
God ministered to my heart and to my life in that situation, but it began with emotional integrity of being honest with God. Now back to the flow of our text, redemptive suffering. Uh, I need to read Isaiah 53. You're all familiar with this. Just four verses. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities, and the chastisement of our peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Six hundred years before Christ came, that prophecy was given of the suffering servant, Jesus, who would die for our sins. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. That's the fact. On that cross, Jesus was made to be sin for us as the righteous indignation of a holy God was poured out upon Jesus as he bore the consequence of our sins. The wages of sin is death, inalterable. No matter who, where, why, when, how, sin has one consequence, death. Inalterable. The question is, will we pay that penalty ourselves, separated from God in the eternal lake of fire? or by faith accept God's sacrifice in Jesus for us. The wages of sin is death, and Jesus paid that consequence, which enabled a holy God to be morally free to extend forgiveness to those who in faith, and this are the words of Jesus in Mark 1.15, those who in faith repent and believe. To say, I believe, I ask Jesus in my heart, if there is no sense of connecting that to the reality of why it's important that our sin separated us from God and we need to repent of our sin. Repentance is a willingness that says, I'm sorry, God. There's an emotional element. And I agree with you, God. It is my sin that sent Jesus to that cross. And I'm sorry. I ask your forgiveness and I give you the right to bring change into my life. I... I, choose to turn from my sin. That's part of what believe means. According to scripture, John the Baptist said, repent and believe. Jesus said, repent and believe. And the apostles said, repent and believe. And if you haven't faced the reality of sin in your life and a willingness to say, God, I'm sorry, it's yours, change my life. If you've come, kind of had some religious ask Jesus into your heart, that didn't cut it. Unsaved is a fence post. Asking Jesus means we're giving him the right to bring change into our lives. Not only to redeem, but to root out sin from our lives. The submission of our life and heart to him. This message was necessary because the fault for you are all like sheep going astray. <clears throat> but by his stripes you were healed. That we, having died to sins, there it is, might live for righteousness. And I want to just add here in passing, I hear this all the time. There's a major segment of the evangelical church today that believes that Isaiah 53, by his stripes you were healed, is a guarantee 
that God will heal us in every instance. But again I say that by his stripes we are healed from what? Did Jesus die for our post-nasal drip, our hangnails for bunions and baldness and bellyache, or did he die to heal us of our sin? To me it's demeaning to Jesus to say that he died for our sickness. He died for our sin. There is no healing guaranteed in the atonement. Healing is provided at the throne of grace. But it's not based upon our will, but his. He chooses to heal when it is his purposes for us to be healed. When he doesn't, it's for his purposes. And God is good, always. No matter what, God is good. And just in passing, by whose stripes you were healed. This is referring back to the cross and sin and salvation. This is not an ongoing being healed along the way uh, from our sicknesses all the time, whenever absolutely guaranteed and so on. It's just not true. Jesus, the overseer and shepherd of our souls, and I am glad to leave that with him. The word overseers is the same as elder. And uh, Jesus is the overseer of our soul. He watches over as a shepherd, a good shepherd. In closing, some summary thoughts. Suffering is not a choice. How we respond to it is. You will suffer. How you respond to it is where the choice is. Don't waste your sorrows. They're expressions of God's grace. Don't waste them. Don't run from them. Following in his steps is more than maybe you were told. But before we can follow Jesus' model, we must know him as Savior. And Father, I pray that if there's any here today who have never bowed the knees of their hearts to the authority and lordship of Jesus Christ, giving him the right to their life by faith accepting his sacrifice for their sins, I pray that this would be a day of beginning. And I thank you, Father, for the assurance that no matter what comes our way, there is a purpose according to your will and purpose, whatever it is. And I thank you that you have promised to go with us even through the shadow of the valley of death, the valley of the shadow of death. I thank you, Father, that we can trust you even when we don't know why circumstances are what they are. But I thank you that we can trust that you are good and that you do know why and that we can leave outcomes to you. These things I pray in Jesus' name, amen.